Hi everybody, it's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with just the zoo of us, your favorite animal review podcast, where our cat scratches underneath the door while we're trying to record. I think this one might be the dog. Oh, it's one of them, isn't it? (laughs) Where we get no peace from either of the goblins that inhabit our house. On any day ending in Y. <laughs> we uh, take your favorite animals and review them by rating them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we try our best to get the most accurate information we can. Speaking of which. Speaking of which. <laughs> we do have a follow-up to our last episode that we did together in which you have been scolded. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in our last episode together, I discussed the spotted lanternfly, which is a notorious, infamous invasive species. And one of the things we talked about was a potential solution to that mm-hmm. that is being researched mm-hmm. right now that involves introducing wasps, which are native to the spotted lanternfly's homeland. And we kind of joked around that that often leads to a little old lady who swallowed the fly situation, where then the the introduced species themselves becomes a problem in their own right. Um, and so we heard back from a friend of ours, Emily Bell. Mm-hmm. Um, love Emily. Longtime listeners will recognize her from our Green Anole episode mm. a long time ago. Emily specifically works with invasive species awesome. here in Florida. So, you know, is, is works a lot with invasive plants and invasive insects and things like that. So Emily replied on Twitter. I'll just start from the beginning. Um, Emily said, love to hear just the zoo of us talking invasive species and asking the tough questions like, why do we keep planting super stinky non-native trees everywhere? Because the tree of heaven that we talked about smells quite bad, as we yes. heard from the Portland government. So when I said that, why do we keep doing this? Because I was thinking of, I think it's called the Bradford pear tree. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's talked about a lot in the meme groups. Oh, it smells real bad. <laughs> yeah. But we do have this problem, right, of like animals that are often introduced as pets control that then become much bigger problems themselves right sure. like asian lady beetles are one that come to mind now they're all over the place right mm-hmm. so emily says however i've got a little bone to pick with christian sorry christian you're getting scolded it had to happen eventually <laughs> emily says he mentioned he had never heard of a case of biological control working and basically not becoming a disaster uh, i don't blame him for this perception we can't seem to get our success stories out there enough to influence public perception but they exist and here's three big ones so this is really cool number one here in florida right here at home we have the adorable air potato beetle who since released has greatly helped land managers and homeowners manage the extremely aggressive air potato vine which i felt a little embarrassed when she said that because i just recently took a picture of an air potato vine that had been like decimated by these beetles because you can see when the vine has been eaten by these bugs they make the leaves like extremely perforated to the point that they look almost like lacy. It looks like someone just like went absolutely nuts with a hole puncher on oh, them. I see. Emily also says in Hawaii, Uritoma erythrinae, a Tanzanian parasitoid wasp, was released and has successfully controlled a gall wasp that threatened one of the state's important native trees, the willy willy, Erythrina sandwisensis. That is a parasitoid wasp mm-hmm. that was released to control another wasp. And it worked. Um, And then finally, Emily says, in Australia, prickly pear cactus were introduced and caused widespread problems until the release of a cactus moth. 
Emily says these are just a few examples. There are many more. Essentially, today's classical biological control is a far cry from the days when legislators were proposing introducing hippos to Florida to eat the water hyacinth. Yes. It is an incredibly rigorous and scientifically sound process. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely not, you know, the the stories that I think make the most eye-grabbing headlines, right? Because... I think in general, when problems are solved, those don't usually make as much waves as a new problem. You don't hear about the disasters that were averted. Exactly. Yeah. You only (laughs) hear about things that are like, oh, no, here's a thing that's getting worse. You never hear about things that are getting better. Um, But I'm glad they're out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm definitely glad that we had a chance to to spotlight those a little bit and Sometimes wins can be hard to come by, so we should appreciate them when we have them. And that's the follow-up that I had for this week. I believe you go first this time around. So this week, I'm bringing big fish called bowmouth guitarfish. Bowmouth. Okay, these are two words, right? Yes. Bowmouth is one word. Uh Guitarfish is the second word. So only two of those four words are applicable. Oh. It does have a mouth, and it is a fish. (laughs) <laughs> you're telling me that it's not some sort of guitar fish hybrid it's not legolas shredding scientific name rhina and Psilostoma. and it's also known as the shark ray the shark ray couldn't, yes couldn't decide which one to settle on <laughs> is it a fish it is a shark is it a ray what's going on here these answers and more coming <laughs> Now, this species was submitted by Sam from North Georgia via email. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Sam. And I'm getting my information from the Georgia Aquarium. I found at georgiaaquarium.org, as well as Fishbase at fishbase.org. Sam, I believe, also mentioned the Georgia Aquarium. Yes. uh, They at least used to have uh, bowmouth guitarfish. I assume they still do. It's been a while since we've been there. But we used to go all the time. It's very close to our hearts. We talk about them all the time. It's a great place. (laughs) Now, they are big fish. Their adult size reaches a max of three meters long, mm. or about 10 feet. There we go. Okay, 10 feet. That's really big. Big fish. That's huge. And their max weight is 135 kilograms, nearly 300 pounds. Chunky. Mm-hmm. That's bigger than an actual guitar. <laughs> yeah. Where they can be found is in the Indo-West Pacific, so a fairly large swath of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, near reefs at a depth of 3 to 90 meters, or about 10 to 300 feet. So that's in the shallow range of the ocean. Yes. I see, I see. Which is surprising considering how big they are. Usually when you see stuff that, that that's that big, it's usually way out there. Mm-hmm. They belong to the taxonomic family Rhinidae, or the wedge fishes. Other things in that kind of family, well, actually at their order, is the Rhinopristiformes, which contains other guitar fishes and sawfishes. So you've talked about a sawfish before with a yes. guest. Yeah, Jasmine Graham, uh, one of the founders of MISS, Minorities mm-hmm. in Shark Science, uh, joined me to talk about sawfish, which are very interesting. They're the ones that have a giant blade covered with knives coming right, right out of the front <laughs> of their face. It's unmistakable. An, an <laughs> icon. So perhaps a lot of what you learned about that animal and maybe the, the listeners learned will kind of inform some of the things I'm about to talk about Ooh. because they're in the same order. Okay. So cousins. Yes. Now, is this one a shark or a ray? It is a ray. Oh, it's not a shark. Yeah. Okay. Correct. All right. Whereas I believe the sawfish was also not a shark. I think so. I'm trying to remember. I remember that it's very similar to one, and I was surprised that it was not the other. (laughs) Pretty sure, at least. Pretty sure. 
Um, I assume if they're in the same order, right. we wouldn't be mixing sharks and rays we in wouldn't, order. Yeah. Okay. But here's why that confusion happens. So especially with the bow mouth guitar fish, they look like a cross between a shark and a ray. Yeah. <laughs> but like I said, they're actually a ray. Now, according to the Georgia Aquarium's website, a way to tell if something is a shark or a ray is the location of its gills. Oh, really? So if they're on the underside, it's a ray. That makes sense. Whereas if they're on the sides above their pectoral fins, it's a shark. Or another fish, I suppose. It's all coming together now. Because <laughs> uh, I'm imagining that when, like a lot of times in an aquarium, a stingray will swim up the side of the glass. Mm-hmm. And you can see the bottom side of it. Yep. Also, the mouth placement is a good giveaway, too. That's true, yeah. Because the mouth is going to be all the way up under, yeah, on the bottom side of it. Very few sharks have mouths like that, I Can't think. Can't think of any sharks with mouths like that. <laughs> cookie cutter shark maybe gets close to it, maybe. Uh, but in terms of what, what they look like, Aside from that, so they are brown on the top with light spots. So they have like a spotted kind of pattern on Mm. them. And of course, on the underside, they're white. This is a common thing we see with fish and sharks and rays. No, uh, no wood grain pattern. No, no, (laughs) no pick guard on the side. Their head is flat and spade shape, uh, and their pectoral fins kind of flow into that flat plane oh, of their body. Okay. Yeah. It's like a streamlined kind mm-hmm. of. Now, I think this one resembles a panoramic shot of a nurse shark that went awry about <laughs> a third of the way through. <laughs> <laughs> Starting at the tail end. <laughs> like everything was going according to plan, and then all of a uh-huh. sudden maybe somebody bumped your arm while you were... <laughs> or maybe it moved too quick and mm-hmm. warped the picture. Another thing that kind of sets it apart from sharks, uh, most sharks, I guess, is, you know, these and sharks have two dorsal fins, right? Mm. There's That's usually on sharks, you know, a front larger dorsal fin and a smaller second dorsal fin. towards a backup dorsal the, fin. Right. In case the first one fails. And the big one is the one we think of when we think of a shark's dorsal fin breaking the water when it's swimming near the, the surface. Yeah, that one's for show. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting with this one, though, is that both of those dorsal fins it has are both pretty large like the second one is only slightly smaller so it has these two pretty large dorsal fins it seems unusual for something so like flattened Mm -hmm. right i assume it's for swimming stability reasons oh like to keep them from toppling to one side Mm -hmm. oh because like the other fish i can think of that are flattened laterally like that don't they usually try to like be as flattened as they right. can. Yeah, it's it's because that backside they have a tail that resembles a shark. Right. Um. So I guess that has to do with their mode of transportation. So they're not doing flapping like like a stingray might. Sure. So that probably has a lot to do with it with the the mode of swimming. Oh, that makes sense because stingrays do kind of have that like undulation mm-hmm. that they do with their like wings. Right. But the shark is propelling itself with right. their tail. And the guitar fish is is swimming much more like a shark. Interesting. Yes. Huh. Imposter. There's an imposter <laughs> among us. Now, I'll get into our first category of effectiveness, which describes physical attributes that help it do its thing. Please do. I'm giving a 7 out of 10. That's not bad. Yeah. The first thing I want to note is that they are ovoviviparous. Mm, love this word. Right. They have eggs that hatch inside the mother's body then are born alive. So this looks from the outside just like like a placental live birth. Right. But then in this case there is no placenta involved. <laughs> it's all eggs. Right. Oops, there's all there's eggs. still <laughs> <laughs> The difference between that is interesting because from the outside it looks like the same process. Right. Yeah. But in a placental birth, the placenta is like part of the mother's body the whole time. Mm. 
where like the the placenta is still like getting cells and blood and stuff from the mother's body the whole time. Mm -hmm. But for an ovoviviparous animal, Mm -hmm. once the egg is formed, it is completely separate from the mother's body. It's got an egg yolk sac in there and going to town. It's worth noting that other, you know, rays give birth this way, but a lot of them don't. A lot of them do like the the mermaid purse type egg laying. Oh, yeah. They can be real, like the little egg sacs that Mm. they leave behind. They look like little alien spaceships. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Creepy. (laughs) Another example of this kind of birthing, I think, are manta rays. Mm. Do guitar fish come out all (laughs) rolled up like a burrito? I don't know. I didn't think to look it up. I doubt it, though. That body is not as flexible as like the wings of of a ray. Yeah, because they don't have as much like lateral sort of width, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. You know, you were talking about the the sawfish earlier mm-hmm. and something I remember asking uh, Jasmine when she was on to talk about the sawfish is that they also are ovoviviparous and birth their pups, which is, you can imagine, birthing a pup that has a giant jagged knife coming out of its face (laughs) is not an ideal situation for anybody giving birth and so the solution to that is that the pups are born with like a goopy sort of sheath perfect around their nose so that it doesn't hurt a mother when they're born you know we see this in mammals too particularly hoofed animals yeah 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 because they'll they'll have like a soft casing around the Mm -hmm. around the pointy bits what do they call those fairy fingers i think (laughs) On, on horses it's yeah it's it's not cool to look at <laughs> it's horrifying i hate it so much <laughs> so i guess you know, it's either that or just not born with whatever that is yet and right. it develops later yeah so, so. <laughs> has nothing to do with the guitar fish i just thought it was neat yeah i agree i think we'll talk about is their teeth their teeth are wild Really? Yeah. Where even are they? So just like a stingray, you know, they their mouth is on their underside. Okay. Uh, so start there in terms of ima- right. imagining the anatomy. <laughs> so their teeth, uh, so first of all, they primarily eat crustaceans and mollusks. Uh, so I could not find a way to describe this using my own words. So I'm using, I'm going to quote to the Georgia Aquarium website. Okay, that's fine. Its jaws are heavily ridged with crushing teeth in undulating rows. Mm. So you're, this is probably not enough to, to get the good picture of it. So I, I highly urge listeners and even you to maybe find a picture of this in your free time because it's very interesting to look at. I think maybe like I remember when we were talking about the cow nose ray, mm-hmm. their teeth are kind of like bony plates that they just like mash stuff with. So is it kind of like that? It is kind of like that. But instead of flat plates, they took that idea and made like <laughs> these big bump nodules that interlock. Oh. Yeah. Hold on. Let me look up guitar fish teeth. Now you've piqued my interest. I think interest. it's specifically the bow mouth. I don't think they all look like this. When you type in bow mouth, the first like suggested Google search is bow mouth guitar fish teeth. Ew. <laughs> oh, no. So it's the jaw itself that does the interlocking. And then if you look in closer, there's a bunch of small teeth that are, are comprising it. They are. Um, you know what it looks like? That Romanesco broccoli. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking I about? I see that, yeah. The- <laughs> This fish's jaw looks like it was like designed by an AI art program <laughs> that doesn't quite understand what like teeth are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, is this it? Is this what you wanted? And you're like, not at all. That's horrifying. <laughs> wow, I hate that. 
And Great. You, you can see this too whenever you, if you were to see one in an aquarium or whatever setting and you're able to see their underside. Because, mm-hmm. you know, they usually have their mouth kind of at least open a little bit there. How eldritch. So very good at crushing the things it eats. I definitely see that, yeah. <laughs> so we go back to talk about, you know, where these things are found. You mentioned, you know, they're in relatively shallow water. That's because that's where the things they're eating are can be found. So, you know, crabs, mm. mollusks. Yeah, that, those plates make a lot of sense for crushing up things with tough shells. Yes. That makes sense. Yep. Are they like slurping stuff off the bottom <laughs> like how stingrays do? Uh, in a way. I mean, they, they you can find the crab, chomp it up. Sure. Yeah. I imagine that stingrays are kind of like how we imagine UFOs, how they just kind of like glide in and then tractor beam the prey up. Mm-hmm. I imagine that's kind of what a stingray is like if you're <laughs> a critter living on the bottom. Right. I found a video of the Animal Planet series Aquarium uh, where they were at the Georgia Aquarium specifically talking about their two bowmouth guitarfish, a male and female. Mm. They were talking about how they suspected one that the, the female was pregnant at the time, and they were showing their feeding process where they're using target training, right? Which oh, we, cool. Which we talked about before, I believe. Uh, where they use this colored board that they just kind of dip into the top of the tank. I think they're in the larger tank with the whale sharks. That makes sense. Yeah. Probably hanging out on the bottom, though. But when they do this, the the guitar fish know to come up the sides of the tank to come get fed. Mm. And in the video, they were eating lobster that day. <laughs> <gasps> Bougie. <laughs> <laughs> they're and having they, a fancy day. And they've been trained to like, so they, they're coming up the side of the tank up to the surface where the, you know, the, the workers are. And then they'll f- turn around so that their mouths are facing outward so that mm-hmm. the people feeding them can easily you know put food in their mouth. And are able to, you know, not be wedged between that and the wall. Oh. Because if they do get their hands in there, it is going to hurt. <laughs> true. That's true. That's not a situation you yeah. want to be in. Mm. You don't want to be sticking your mouth into that little conveyor belt of horrors. <laughs> now, they do, on their back, have thorns or spines. What? Really? Yes. So there's ridges of them behind their eyes. Oh. So they're meant for defense, but they also get gets them caught up in fishing equipment. Oh, that's a backfire. Yeah. Don't so want that. They're already large fish. Oh, sure. <laughs> they have these like thorns on their, you know, top side that gets them all caught up in the netting and stuff. I suppose the net is not something that they were prepared evolutionarily to handle. Right. Right. <laughs> so that's I count it as an overall positive. That's as, true. As defense. Cuz it's not their fault. <laughs> yeah. Although if you're 10 feet long, like what are you defending yourself against? <laughs> what are those spines going to do for you at that point that your massive size hasn't already done? I believe I read Tiger Sharks. Oh, yeah. well, they'll, like, they'll get anything. <laughs> Moving on to our second category of ingenuity. Uh, this is smart things, things that they're using their brains for. <laughs> and I've actually, you know, talking about the uh, target training. Yeah. I, I decided to bump up the score. Really? I'm going to put it at a six. Uh, <laughs> that's after bumping it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> that, that's literally one of the only things I could find. Okay. That's uh, fair. Being, being able to be target trained, that's fairly impressive, I think. That's true. Because you have to understand cause mm-hmm. and effect. You have to understand like, oh, I need to go here and perform this action to... Well, and also in the video, they were saying it's purely visual based. Like mm. in other animals, they ha- also have to use auditory like a, making a sound of some sort to, to get them to react. Oh, but they can see well enough to... Mm. I, I found that video that I sent you earlier about their eyes. So that's a different species. But for that one, you know, it had eyes that it could retract instead of blinking. 
Right. Was it that it could or that it like had to? I don't know if it had to. It seemed more of a defensive thing, like a snail. Mm. Oh, I see. Like like sucking it in so that yeah. they don't get their eyes hurt. <laughs> and that's what it looked like, at least in that video, because mm-hmm. there's some divers or something like uh, getting close to where the eyes were. It reminded me of how frogs have to pull in their eyes to swallow. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I wish I could. Every day I wish I could forget about that. <laughs> But that's what it reminded me of. They yeah. just like suck their eyeballs in. Mm, it's fun. creepy. Yeah, it's super gross. And our last category of aesthetics, self-explanatory, uh, how cool they look, how pretty, beautiful, etc. I'm going to get 8 out of 10. You like these? I do like these. Uh, they have a unique charm to them. You know, we're weirdly placed and shaped jaw aside. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, with the jaw being so horrible and uncomfortable to look at, it is tucked away. Right, out of sight, out of mind. Unless <laughs> you are a viewer at an aquarium and it decides to swim up the glass. And then you're getting the full frontal of it. And then you get a free show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know we've definitely seen these fish at the aquarium. Yeah. I just don't know if we've ever seen them from the bottom. Also, if they're in this whale shark tank, there's a lot of other stuff going That's on true. in there, too. Unfortunately, <laughs> they are being upstaged. I hate to say it, but there's a lot happening in that tank. <laughs> that, unfortunately, uh, they're probably not going to be receiving a lot of the spotlight. Yeah. So, I thought they were interesting. I like the fusion of shark and rave aesthetic. It's mm. very interesting. Yeah, it is kind of that middle ground mm-hmm. between shark and ray. Yeah. They are critically endangered. Wow. As of the IUCN's 2018 assessment. So, you know, the primary thing that's working against them is being overfished. Oh. So both as targeted and non-targeted fish fishing. So like on purpose and accidental? Right. Okay. Because I guess another an unfortunate similarity to sharks is... When they are caught, even by accident, a lot of times in that area, they are harvested for their fins. Oh. Is it one of those situations where they cut the fins and then throw the rest back? Yes. A lot of times, yeah. Oh, no. Poor babies. Yeah. So they are overfished. Um, However, turtle exclusion devices and trawl nets... So with a trawl net, this is a big, giant net that a boat is pulling behind it catching fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a device called a turtle exclusion device that can be part of that that, lo- that allows turtles or things of that size to be able to get out of the trawl net. Really? Yeah. Think of it as a tube of netting, and there's a little offshoot for the turtle to get out of. It's you know, suggested that those devices that were you know put in place for sea turtles, because there's been a lot of conservation work around sea turtles, mm-hmm. will also help these things when they for get sure. caught in these trolley nets. Yeah. The guitar fish by itself might not be everybody in the world's, you know, favorite, cutest, most adorable, sweet and cuddly animal. Mm-hmm. But if you can get people excited about sea turtles, then the guitar fish is going to see some of that benefit, some right. of that conservation benefit. Yeah, it goes back to the to the panda model, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> if it gets the work done, you know, like, I got no hate for him. Yep. So that's about it for the bone mouth guitar fish. Beautiful. What a nice fish. I feel like they're uh, underappreciated. They get no hype. Mm-hmm. So, And if you never heard about them and see them for the first time, you'll probably wonder, oh, I wonder if that's a shark or not. Well, anyway. <laughs> we love sharks and rays. They're, we're big fans of our Elasma Brank friends. Ooh. I know. I'm pulling out the fancy words. <laughs> that's, what, that's what that word means, Elasma Brank. I like it. Cartilaginous fish. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you, darling. That was great. Yeah, no problem. Let's hear from our friends over on the Max Fun Network, and then we'll get to my animal. And now, a live reading from Rachel's Poetry Corner. Elephants Theremin's Clifton, Neopets Poorstrips Jepson, Pine Smell Jellybeans Goalie Goals, Skittles Squirrels and the Mole, Celery Chopsticks Pumpernickel, A Case of You by Joni Mitchell, Lullabies Tie-Dye The More You Know, all of these things on our wonderful show. All of these things and more wait for you on Wonderful every Wednesday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Did your neighbor back into your car? Bring that case to Judge Judy. Think the mailman might be the real father? Give that one to Judge Mathis. But does your mom want you to flush her ashes down the toilet at Disney World when she passes away? Now that's my jurisdiction. Welcome to the court of Judge John Hodgman, where the people are real, the disputes are real, and the stakes are often unusual. If I got arrested for dumping your ashes in the Jungle Cruise, it would be an honor. I don't want to be part of somebody getting a super yacht. I don't know at what point you want to go into this, but we've had a worm bin before. Available free right now at MaximumFun.org. Judge John Hodgman, the court of last resort when your wife won't stop pretending to be a cat and knocking the clean laundry over. So what do you bring this week, Ellen? This week, I submit to you humbly for your approval, mm-hmm. the Timber Rattlesnake. Ah, approval granted. <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> uh, they're also called the Canebrake Rattlesnake, but specifically in the South, they're called the Canebrake. Kind of different words for the same species, Crotalus horridus, hmm. which horridus seems unfair this was someone that got bit by a rattlesnake, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. You know, rattlesnakes are native to North America. When Europeans came to North America, they had no idea how to handle rattlesnake bites. They'd never oh. seen anything like it. Like early European medics just like had no, like if you got bit by one of these, you were done. <laughs> this species was submitted by Maddie via email. Thank you, Maddie. And I'm getting my information from Smithsonian's National Zoo, the Florida Museum, Animal Diversity Web, the Orient Society, and the National Library of Medicine's page, uh, Rattlesnake Toxicity. And that was last updated in April of 2022. Nice. So if you're not super familiar with this particular rattlesnake, they're decently sized. They're typically three to five feet long, Mm -hmm. which is 76 to 152 centimeters. Though The largest one ever sighted was seven feet long or two meters, which is huge at like the absolute max size. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But something to keep in mind with that size, even the three to five feet doesn't sound extremely long for like snakes. You know, pythons can get much bigger than that. These are thick. (laughs) This is like a chunky little fat snake. Yeah. Plump and they're very wide around the middle. Mm -hmm. So even though it's not an incredibly long snake, it is still a big snake because of how muscular they yeah, are. Yeah, I mean, it's probably up there in terms of the venomous snakes. It is, for sure. Like, it's 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 a heavy hitter. Mm-hmm. They Massive gains. <laughs> Astronomical gains on this fellow. 
and they are found throughout most of the eastern United States. So they go all the way up to New York, down to Florida, as far west as Texas and Oklahoma. And like I mentioned, there are different words for if you're up north, they call them a timber rattlesnake. And if you're down south, you call them a canebrake rattlesnake. And there are some minor differences between them. They have like slight differences in coloration. They behave a little differently. But this is different from the diamondback rattlesnake. This is not the diamondback rattlesnake, right? Just check. Yes. They do have a different pattern. They have these sort of like chevron zigzaggy bands across their body. Okay. Yeah. But otherwise, they do still have kind of that typical, you know, light brown with like very dark brown or black bands across Mm -hmm, them. mm -hmm. There's some debate as to whether the timber and the canebrake should be considered separate subspecies. Currently, they're not officially valid as a subspecies, so they're all considered the same one. Mm -hmm. But there are believed to be differences between them, which could have like conservation implications. Right. Yeah. You know, like if they're split up into two separate species, then you could give them higher conservation statuses. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, because the idea is if broken into subspecies, one would then be seen as being worse off than the other versus the average of the whole Right. If you're taking every single one of the species into consideration, you're like, oh, yeah, there's tons of them. But Mm -hmm. if you split them up into smaller groups, then... We saw this with orcas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of like that. They are in the taxonomic family Viperidae. Okay. They're a pit viper. So we've talked about a pit viper before. We've talked about two pit vipers, I think. Yes. The um, water moccasin, also known as the cottonmouth, which is actually a cousin to this. They share a subfamily with water moccasins. So they're actually pretty closely related to those. So vipers are interesting. Vipers are venomous snakes with hinged fangs. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that the fangs are attached to these short hinged bones called maxilla. So it's the bone that... um, It's on a hinged joint. So what they can do is they can fold their fangs up into the roof of their mouth when they're not using them. Mm -hmm. And then when they strike, they can swivel that hinge and basically deploy their fangs. And it lets them have these really long, sharp fangs that aren't just like goofily poking out of their mouth when their mouth is (laughs) Pit viper also means that they have heat-sensing pits on the front of their nose Mm -hmm. Uh, like right on the front of their face you'll see these kind of like holes in their nose i suppose those are for sensing heat so it makes them really good at finding warm-blooded prey so they're specializing in mammals they're especially going after rodents Mm -hmm. are kind of their favorite so getting into the uh getting into my ratings for this rattlesnake for effectiveness i give them a nine out of ten mostly for how potent their venom is they Mm. are very very venomous. Uh, their venom is a cocktail of hemotoxins and neurotoxins. Mm. So it's not like it's only doing one or the other. You're kind of <laughs> getting the whole suite. You're getting the... One would not be enough. No, you're getting a, a package deal. <laughs> you're getting a symphony of venom. It causes a whole host of problems. It'll ruin your day, completely mess you up. Before, when we've talked about poisonous or venomous animals, you've used, you've used LD50 as a statistic, which is... A little bit of a confusing statistic to use because it's difficult to visualize, but what it means is how much venom you would need to kill half of a test population, right? So if you're testing this venom out on mice and you have 100 mice, Mm -hmm. how much venom would you need to kill 50 of those 100 mice? Right. So the lower the number, the stronger the venom is. Right. 
so the the LD stands for lethal dose, right? And then it's usually expressed in terms of units of venom per mass of subject, right? And then it'll also include like what the subject is and also how it was delivered because right. the method of delivery for toxic substances really makes a huge oh, yeah, difference. It's real important. Um, which was a huge <laughs> thorn in my side when trying to find this information <laughs> because I was tracking down lists that like listed an LD50 but didn't say anything about what that number meant. Yeah. So then I had to like dig to try to find somebody like who actually had this information in context and I found it. Um, so you're all welcome. <laughs> and what I I found was that the timber rattlesnake has an LD50 of 3.1 milligrams of venom per kilogram of mice. Mm-hmm. And that is administered subcutaneously, which most closely mimics the way their fangs would be administering the venom. Subcutaneous meaning under the skin. To put that into some context, that's compared with the water moccasin, which is a very, very feared snake around here where we live. For some reason, yeah. I know. It's it's not... <laughs> anyway, their LD50 is 25.8 milligrams of venom per kilogram mm-hmm. of mice. So basically, it only takes three milligrams of timber rattlesnake venom to do the damage that a water moccasin's venom does in 25 milligrams. So it's much, much, much stronger. I did find this information, I should say, in a list that was compiled by Australian herpetologist Brian Grieg Fry, and that was on his website, venomdoc.com. Hmm. So thank you for doing that work for me, because this was a huge pain to try to find this information. <laughs> LD50 is a difficult number to research. It is. So if a human gets envenomated by a timber rattlesnake, you can have all sorts of symptoms, mostly like pain, swelling, tissue necrosis. Mm -hmm. So it'll start rotting, like the wound can actually start, like the cells will start dying off around it. It can cause nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, anaphylaxis, something called myokymia, which is muscle twitching. And then it can eventually cause your body to just shut down. Uh, so if you get bitten by a rattlesnake, you need to go to a hospital immediately. Please don't <laughs> mess around with any. Just go straight there. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Proceed directly to the nearest hospital. <laughs> it's bad news. You don't want to deal with that. Rattlesnakes can sometimes perform a dry bite mm-hmm. if they don't want to deplete their venom. If they're just trying to bite to get you to leave them alone. They might right. do like a bite that's ju- that doesn't have any venom on it. So you could be fine, yeah. but you do not want to roll those dice. Well, that, and that's also the other side of the venom uh, LD50 coin, mm-hmm. right? Is So you, you're talking about how much venom per you know mass of subject is required. Then you also have to talk about how much venom is typically being injected by a bite. Right, like how much are they <laughs> delivering? What's the payload looking like? Because I think when we talked about the Gaboon Viper, mm-hmm. you know, its LD50 wasn't particularly impressive, but... It made up for that by doing a lot of venom. It's just pumping you full of it. <laughs> but, you know, you may get a dry bite, but you don't want to be playing that game. You want to mm. just go ahead and go to the hospital. Yeah, because, you know. You could be very <laughs> not fine. That being said, according to the National Library of Medicine, they say in the United States, approximately 9,000 people per year suffer from a snake bite, but only five deaths occur. So very, very few people actually die from a snake bite. Uh, They also said, I don't know why they felt the need to say this, but they said oftentimes the victim of a rattlesnake bite is a young intoxicated male. 
Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know why they felt the need to sneak that in there. They're like, it's mostly drunk guys. Like, <laughs> was that necessary? That does paint an interesting picture of a typical snake bite victim, though. Hey guys, watch this. It's all. It's a hold my beer moment. I should say, you know, since we're talking about snake bites, snakes don't want to bite you. They don't. They have no reason to want to bite you. You're not on their menu. It's a last resort. This snake in particular is very hesitant to bite. Like mm-hmm. They're much more likely to remain coiled. They'll warn you that they're there by rattling, which I'll talk about in just a second, or they'll just flee. Like They will only bite you if you're actually making physical contact with them. Like mm-hmm. If you touch them, then they're going to resort to biting. But other than that, it's really not something they want to do. So you can make your, both of yourselves happy by just keeping clear away from them. They're, they're not aggressive. Just leave them alone. Yeah. There's a myth floating around out there that you can tell if a snake is venomous by if it has a triangular shaped head. That's not a thing. And I feel like in the moment, it's really hard for you to both get at an angle where you can see the shape of its head clearly from above. Mm-hmm. And also tell, like, mm, is that triangular enough? <laughs> like, in, uh, And also some snakes that are not venomous mimic venomous snakes by flattening their head right. and making their head more triangular. So, like, it's not reliable just as a general rule. Just don't mess with any of them. If you find yourself, you know, making a decision on your next movements based <laughs> on whether or not you think that snake is venomous or not, you're and- already wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say treat every snake like it's venomous because some people translate that into I have to proactively kill every snake. Which which don't do that either. Like it's not it's never a, a huge amount of snake bites are because of someone actively trying to kill a snake. Right. Yeah. You you want to be tough <laughs> and try to kill the snake, but you don't need to do that. Just leave it alone in general. Yeah. So since I mentioned that, you know, they are more likely to try to warn you that they're there, that brings me to the iconic thing about the rattlesnake that Mm -hmm. gives it its name is its rattle. Um, So at the end of a rattlesnake's tail is a series of hard interlocking segments. And the segments are actually just modified scales. So they're made of keratin, just like our hair and fingernails. So if you look at your fingernails, that's kind of about the texture of a rattlesnake's rattle. They're a lot harder than they look. They look like they might be kind of flimsy and like hollow well they're hollow but they look like you could probably like pinch them together or something you really can't they're tough okay they're very hard but they're sort of slotted behind each other Mm -hmm. each segment is like loosely slotted into the one in front of it so that there is enough flexibility for movement that allows the rattle to shift from side to side and and wiggle a little bit and I, i guess i always thought before i ever saw a rattle dissected that it made the sound by being like full of something like <laughs> maraca I, beads. Yes, I thought it was like a maraca situation. I don't know what I thought was in there. I don't know why I thought that, but that's just what I always thought because that's what it sounds like. Yeah, but it's not. It's just these interlocking scales that the um, the snake just twitches its tail back and forth. and then the little scales click clack against each other. It makes a rattling sound. Yeah. I've always wanted to have the opportunity to hold one of those rattles, obviously mm. no longer attached to a snake, <laughs> to see how, how hard is it to shake it to get that sound to, it's to not. go. It's not. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I was going to say that there is a, a YouTube video that actually was my first time seeing what the rattlesnake's rattle actually looks like on the inside. Mm-hmm. 
And the YouTube video is on the channel Odd Animal Specimens, mm. which is a really interesting channel. They have all sorts of weird stuff, but I actually found on TikTok. But um, yeah, there's a really cool video on there of them like taking apart a rattlesnake rattle where you can see exactly how it works and how it moves. Mm. But it's very loose. Like the scales are very loosely connected together. So you could hold one in your hand and just kind of wave it around and it would make the sound. Mm. Yeah, it's it's really cool. This is so cute. Baby rattlesnakes. Yeah. When they're born, <laughs> they're born with the very first segment of their rattle Ooh. at the end of their tail. And it's called the button. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, <laughs> it's so cute! Um, and every time they shed their skin, they gain a new rattle. They add a new segment onto their rattle that gets longer and longer and longer. Are the oldest segments at the very tip? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that button, like as it gains new segments, the button will mm. just move further out. Okay. W- which is not to say it's going to keep that button forever. Sure. Like you know, something could happen; it could fall off. But if you were to find one that still had the button on it, it would be at the very end. Mm. So cute. This is super interesting, though. This was also on the National Library of Medicine's website. Oh, okay. They say, usually a rattle gives away their presence, but there have been rattlesnakes noted to have a dysfunctional tail, possibly due to human selection of exterminating rattling snakes Uh, in highly populated areas. So I mentioned that like people have a habit of proactively killing venomous snakes, especially rattlesnakes, because rattlesnakes alert you to their presence, right? (laughs) If they feel threatened by you, they're going to warn you to let you know that they're there. (laughs) This causes people to then think, oh my gosh, a rattlesnake, I need to kill it. But what they're not thinking about is, I'm going to kill the one that warned me. Mm -hmm. So you're leaving behind the ones that don't warn you and making them sneakier over time. Right. You're making them more likely to be a, a bigger threat to you. Yeah. Because then you're not going to know they're there and you're more likely to like accidentally step on it and then it'll bite you. Mm-hmm. So interesting uh, case of people shooting themselves in the foot um, there. So don't. that's another reason why you shouldn't do that because you don't know how you're affecting the evolution of the species, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, final thing about their just physical body is that they have something called keeled scales Hmm. so if you look closely Uh, you know what i'm talking about i think so the scales aren't just completely smooth the scales have this sort of ridge straight down the middle each individual scale Mm -hmm. has this little ridge right down the middle um it's not a hundred percent clear what the purpose of the keeled scale is Uh, But one idea is that it might help break up the reflection of the light off of their scale. Mm. So it gives them a more matte finish. (laughs) It doesn't make them as shiny. So they might be a little better at blending in. You know, we felt a timber rattlesnake skin very Mm -hmm. recently at the zoo. Um, And I remember having that sort of rough texture. Yeah. Next category for them is ingenuity. I'm giving them an 8 out of 10. They are ambush predators. So they spend the vast majority of their time coiled up and hiding and waiting for their prey to wander close enough for them to strike. So they're letting the prey do the work for them. Uh, Very much so in (laughs) the sense that something they'll often do is strike the prey, pump it full of venom, chock full of dead juice, and then they just chill. They let it go. And then they track it down. Mm -hmm. So they follow its scent and let it just die on its own. So they're not having to, like, wrestle with it and, you know, grab it and kill it then. They just put the venom in it, and then they're like, you'll get there. 
and then they go hunt it down and once it's dead on the ground then they're like ah wonderful right so i i think that's a very clever thing to do because you're not having to actually put up a fight right yeah yeah and you you see stories about that happening a lot where, you know, the thing a snake is trying to eat or constrict fights back. <laughs> right. And then that's, you're putting yourself in harm's way, right? Yeah. Like you're going to get hurt much worse. You just let them escape and then go find them later. Mm-hmm. Uh, something funny about this snake that's kind of unexpected is that they climb trees. Oh. Yeah, they they sure do. And they can be found pretty high up. Uh, the highest one I saw recorded was 50 feet off the ground. Which is not where you expect a rattlesnake to be. I bet the person that found that wasn't looking for it. (laughs) (laughs) You think they found that snake? (laughs) (laughs) Probably for a bird or something. Okay, so here's the thing. They are up there hunting birds. Yeah. So they they climb up the tree to find a bird. But here's the problem. You're way up in the tree. You strike at a bird. You're a snake with no hands. What do you do next? Fall to the ground. They just fall. Do they? Yes. (laughs) They just fall. They can't go back down the way they came up? I mean, they could if they weren't also striking at stuff. Oh. Right? So, like, if you're up in a branch 50 feet off the ground and a bird flies by and you jump for the bird. So, you got one shot. Now what? (laughs) You better hope you don't take fall damage. (laughs) Last kind of thing about them is that they do, when when males are competing with other males to mate with a female, Mm -hmm. they do a ritual combat dance yes that is very charming they like (laughs) they kind of get side by side and they raise the like the front of their body up off the ground and they sway back and forth together Hmm. if you don't know what that is you might assume it was two snakes trying to court each other right that they were getting ready to mate together it is not that it is a competitive thing, but it looks very romantic. So is it's it beautiful? Is it a dance off or are they actually fighting? It's a dance off that can escalate to fighting okay. if they don't back down. Like usually one of them will be like, all right, all right, all right, that's good, it's good. But it is more akin to a dance off situation. Okay, they are getting served, yes, on the regular. <laughs> also, I swear this is the last thing, but I just thought this was so sweet. So rattlesnakes also are ovoviviparous and give mm-hmm. birth to to pups rather than laying eggs but this is unusual for reptiles they stay with their babies so mama will stay behind with her pups for the first seven to ten days of their life (laughs) um and she it's really cute actually like i've seen pictures of rattlesnake dens where mama is just like wrapped around these tiny little she's got her little bowl of noodles and she's just wrapped <laughs> around them and they're 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 tiny and they look so angry <laughs> so like they can't actually be very affectionate and tender mothers which i find very sweet it is it's not something you see often in snakes or at least don't have associated with snakes very right. much so i think that's very sweet um which transitions nicely into aesthetics for the timber rattlesnake i give them a seven it's cute. I mean, it's a cool looking snake. You know, snakes by default look pretty cool. Uh, the chevrons are a nice touch. Like the zigzags are cool. They have chunky cheeks, oh. which I do like. That's where they keep their venom. That's yeah. where they, they store the venom in these sacks next to their cheeks, which makes them look quite chubby in the face, which I love. Their eyes are like permanently angry. Like, I don't know why it is, but they have these sort of like, like angry pointing eyes. So they kind of have some RBF going on. And then the rattle is like a stack of chunky bracelets, and we love accessories. (laughs) So, slay, honestly. Finally, their conservation status. Okay, so the IUCN lists them as least concern Hmm. because, like I said, 
it's one species with a huge range. Right. So since they can be found in a lot of different places, the IUCN doesn't give them, you know, they, they just say they're of least concern. But the thing is, a lot of their populations have been destroyed throughout their range, often mm. intentionally. Like a lot of times people would just go out and kill them on purpose, like seek them out to kill them off, where there would even be like cities and towns that would, until surprisingly recently, until like the 60s, and 70s towns would offer bounties Hmm. for these native rattlesnakes right they'd be like oh if you go out and bag up rattlesnakes and come bring them in we'll pay you for them basically i feel like i've heard of these more recently but maybe it was a different rattlesnake so there are out west you'll see rattlesnake roundups yeah so yeah you know a lot of their populations have been wiped out so they are protected as endangered species at the state level in a lot of the states that they live. Okay. They're mostly impacted by habitat loss and deliberate killing. So roads built through their habitat result in, you know, habitat fragmentation. So the snakes can't reach each other and you get genetic bottlenecking. But also humans just have a long history of killing snakes preemptively. I think what people are not thinking about in that moment is that they are removing an apex predator from an ecosystem, which is then going to cause a cascading effect resulting in you're going to get more rodents, you're going to get more mice. The the problem's not going to get better by just killing out snakes, so don't do it. Just keep in mind that you are far, far more dangerous to a snake than they are to you. I think the best thing anyone can do for snakes is just educate yourself um, and educate the people around you on snakes. So that you can live alongside them peacefully and, you know, try to put in good words for snakes. You know, like if you hear someone around you bad-mouthing snakes, maybe step in and be like, hey, they're not that bad. They do good things for us. We should leave them alone. Mm -hmm. If you've got one in your house, call a professional to have them relocated humanely. And learn about the types that are in your area. Yeah, definitely. Learn about your native snakes. We hear way too much about copperheads for how far away copperheads are. They're nowhere near us. <laughs> but also everybody thinks every snake they see is a water moccasin here. That's true. Everybody, every single one. It could be a garter snake and people are like, it's a cottonmouth. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know you usually are the one that's taking on the snakes. I, I'm sorry for uh, cramping your style a little bit. No, I'm I'm happy to share that torch. <laughs> Mom said it's my turn on the venomous snake. <laughs> and that's all we have for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, Christian, for your time. Oh, thanks. And also you, listener, for your ears. Uh, if you liked what you heard today, please do leave us a good review on your podcatcher. We would really appreciate that. It makes us very happy. Uh, You can also come hang out with us. We're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'll have links in the episode description. My email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com. Please send in your animal submissions and requests to that email address. Um, You're more than welcome to try to send them to me on social media, but it can get a little hectic. So I'm terribly sorry if that gets lost. Please email me. (laughs) That's my point. (laughs) Thank you, Maximum Fun, for having us on the network. We love you. Yes. If you want to learn more about the network and learn how you can support our show, head over to MaximumFun.org. And thank you, Louis Zong, for our theme music. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should uh, do a remix that involves a rattlesnake rattle. <laughs> you know what? Between a rattlesnake and a guitar fish, we're getting really close to like a full band. Next, we, we need a trumpeter swan. Is that a thing? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Now we're now we're getting into ska territory, baby. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Scar is back. <laughs> Thanks. Ciao. Bye. Bye. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.